Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. Brad, I'm excited about today's topic. I'm always excited. <laughs> Any topic we go over, regardless, pure gold. You know, today, okay, so today we're going to talk about what goes on behind the glass curtain. So what, what does it actually look like inside of a real estate private equity firm? Uh, really nice offices, I'll tell you that much. I know. It's when I remember when I was 26 years old and I had my first finance job and I was I was an engineer previous to that and I walked in for the interview and it was downtown San Francisco and it was the most beautiful offices I'd ever seen in my entire life and I was like wow this this is living this is legit was it in Embarcadero Center uh, no it was uh, it was uh, on Montgomery Street near the we, I looked right at the Transamerica Pyramid I was able to count every window in that building oh wow you were busy that day. <laughs> Anyway, so okay, so today we're going to share about hey, what is what does it actually look like inside of a real estate private equity firm? We're going to do this. We're going to do real estate today, and we'll do another one on a on an actual PE firm for operating businesses, just because they do look different. Um, but let's kick it off. Okay, so Brad, I mean, I know we were kind of joking about this, but typically these firms are, you know, call it five to fifty people, and they're they're freaking nice. Yeah, they're not messing around. There's a lot of money going around these firms that they can afford these nice office spaces. And you walk in, there's generally some kind of art on the wall. A lot of art. A lot of art. Generally one of those uh, those brawn western sculptures, the guy riding the horse. Right? And a lot it, of fancy art. And it's, you know, for people that have not been inside of these types of offices, I, one thing I was struck by is that, you know, a lot of offices and more operating companies, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening. You know, there's people running around. There's phones ringing. Uh, sales guys talking to customers, people having meetings left and right, walking around having conversations. I feel like that's not necessarily no, the case. That's not the firms. case at all. It is actually pretty quiet. People are going deep. They're <laughs> in Excel. They're just getting buried in Excel and finance. Yeah. So this is this this is not these are not loud sort of buzzing high energy environments, right? Yeah. On the sell side, right? The investment banks. Yeah, sure. It's crazy. People are, you know, commingling. They're being social. They're making jokes, right? Everybody's working hard and fast. But on the buy side, things are definitely a lot slower. Yep. Okay. So, and so typically nice offices, I feel like, you know, you got the, the, the higher ups have these beautiful offices around the perimeter and then there, maybe there's some some junior guys that have cubicles in the in the more center of the office, typically, right? Yeah, if it's a big enough firm, there's like a bullpen almost where the analysts tend to congregate. A uh, couple of conference rooms, conference rooms. I feel like nice conference rooms seem to be a must. Oh yeah, critical. Yeah, we're, I mean that's where you're going to be meeting with your, both the investors in your in your firm. Yeah, and- I always felt like and, until you really crush it, and then you know you're like the Blackstones, your KKRs, or you know one of these huge firms that it's beyond reproach. Until you hit that point, you have to actually achieve a balance between not being too over <laughs> overboard with you know the amazing artwork and the incredible office space because you you are investing these people's money and they're coming to meet with you and they don't want to see you being you know crazy yeah, with that's the cash. A good point. Yeah, there's a I feel like there's a very nuanced look where it's like you could tell this is nice, but it's just not it's not <laughs> ostentatious, it's not gaudy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and which which just means it was even more expensive. <laughs> Um, okay. So yeah, so five to 50 people, you know, sort of offices on the quieter side, they're very well appointed. Uh, so how about, let's talk about the team, the the people inside the office. So I feel like, you know, we can break it up into a few different groups, but let's acquisition team, right? I mean, in real estate, the acquisition team are the top dogs, right? Yeah. Well, at least, you know, 
they, they like, certainly they like think, to think so. They, they certainly think they are. And we, I, we, see I was you, an, we see you asset managers. <laughs> <laughs> and being an acquisition guy, and that's my background, I totally – Arrogant. Yeah, I fell for that too. <laughs> I was like, oh, we are the – we're the leaders of this firm. Nothing happens without us. Oh. We are the ones out, you know, killing and bringing the deal home. Oh. And yeah, but you're, it's like the nurses looking at the surgeons, right? The surgeons get all the credit, but, man, the nurses do a lot of oh, the work. Oh, they do all the work. They yeah. do all the heavy lifting, right? And then the, the surgeon comes in and, you know, spends like, you know, one-tenth of the time with the patient and gets all the credit. God, just because he, just because he went to more schooling. Um, okay, so acquisition team, what do these guys do? What's the, uh, what's, what's the typical composition? What are their, what's their day-to-day look like? It's kind of all over the board, but you know, it kind of depends on what product type you're chasing. But at real estate firms, the acquisition guys are generally, you know, talking to brokers all day long. You're, you know, reading up on deal flow, uh, other other deals that are happening in the marketplace. You're reaching out to proactively to owners to try to figure out if they are looking to buy. Right, you're going to a ton of industry events. You want to make sure you're you're just in the know, right? You, you're yeah. Deal flow is everything to these. Yeah, guys. you're just you want to make sure you have your ear to the grindstone, right? And just trying to figure out, you know, uh, where these deals are going to shake out, and making sure that you're aware of anything that might pop up uh, off market or even on market. Okay, and then you know, in my experience, there's a typically a, a, a meeting with all of the acquisition team once a week, right? Monday mornings. Yeah, Monday mornings is pretty typical, right? You want to kind of set set the week off right. Everybody gets in the same room, and you go, you know, person by person, talking about the the deals that everybody's tracked. You're adding new deals to the Excel file, the pipeline, right? You're talking about deals that are that you have under contract that are looking to close in the next couple of weeks. What what needs to happen? Discussing even you know evaluating current investment opportunities, right? Like hey, you know, actually looking at deals that are currently getting potentially getting done, right? Yeah. So the couple of firms that I've been at, how this is structured was the beginning of the meeting is generally going over new opportunities and stuff that's, you know, we're just putting into the pipeline. Hey, we just got this package for this $100 million office building. Hey, we, you know, we hear a $200 million apartment complex is coming out, right? So you're the, that's the beginning of the meeting. And then at the end of the meeting, we get down into the weeds on the current deals we're about to make offers on. Then that's when the analyst or the associate you know, is, is passing around the, the financials. Generally you want to have a a formatted kind of package, right? So you can week after week, you can kind of tell, you know, exactly where the numbers are going to be. And so it's formatted. So it can kind of go faster. Formatting is so important. It really is. I just, I was always struck by how important formatting was. Yeah. And some managing directors I've, I've worked for, if something was just slightly out of place, they would spend the whole meeting focused on that. (laughs) Yeah. Right, as opposed to you know the actual deal. So okay, so then let's okay. So we you know you got the acquisition team, and there's usually a hierarchy of these folks, right? So the top the top of the pile is typically called a managing director, right? And there's a few of those in each firm. Yeah, and sometimes you know it could just be the owner of the company, right? Yeah. If it's not a giant private equity firm, this is the managing director would just be the equivalent of the owner. Okay, and so below the managing director, typically you have directors. Yeah, these are these are vice presidents that aren't quite ready for the big leagues. Uh, so you throw them a bone and, and you, you add in this director concept in between VPs and managing directors. Okay, so then the next the next the next one down on the link is, or the chain is the vice president, right? The VP. This is somebody. I, I feel like everyone's a VP at these firms. Yeah, there's a lot of VPs. I used to think that was really impressive until I met a guy that I wasn't that impressed by. Yeah, well, when you're an analyst, you think, oh. If I could just make VP, my life would be so much better, which there's a lot of truth to that. 
Uh, but then when you, you know, you realize you get in that role, you're like, oh, well, this isn't that amazing. I want to, I want to be an owner. I want to be a managing director. Yeah, yeah. It's never quite good enough. Yeah. The VPs are right in the middle. So then below the VPs, you have the associates, right? Yeah. The associate is generally, yeah, we probably went backwards on this. We probably should have started with analyst and gone up, <laughs> but to the associate is, is generally speaking, somebody that either graduated from an analyst and got promoted into associate, or perhaps they came right out of business school. Uh, into the associate role. Yeah, I feel like associate's a nice word to call someone who just, they've been an analyst before yeah, at another senior, job. It's so a it's, senior analyst. I think when I was applying to business school, they just they told me it was okay if I just called myself an associate. <laughs> Which, <laughs> thank you, Phil. Appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's funny about these things is that they're just a, a title, right? But when you're in this world, these titles are very meaningful because that's actually how you're compensated. Sure. Too. But sure. There, when you, when you, uh, you know, actually you own your own company, you realize it's not that, it's not that important. Yeah. Well, and then, okay. So at the bottom of the, the bottom of the heap, the guy's doing all the work, staying until two in the morning. Those are the analysts, right? What does an analyst do? Analyst is cranking through models, right? It's taking a Excel lot of models, Excel right? models, yeah, let's right? Be, let's yeah. be clear. Yeah. <laughs> For, for those of you out there yeah. that haven't worked on Excel. Yeah, I don't think in New York the analysts are dating a lot of models. I think no, the managing directors like, maybe, but yeah, yeah. different models. Yeah. Uh yeah, Excel models. They are Excel jockeys is what uh you know, we call them and it's what I once was and you are you're just cranking through spreadsheets yeah. all day yeah. long. You're basically producing the materials that everyone above you is going to be using to evaluate the investments, right? Which is this is pretty crazy actually if you think about it that uh, you know, generally a 21, 22 year old is sometimes 23, right. Is cranking out all these financial documents, right. These models that, you know, billion dollar decisions are made yeah. on these models <laughs> daily. And it, some of the deals are so complicated. There's almost no way to catch errors, I right. Know. Especially a, when all the MDs are looking at us, the formatting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a, I mean, part of the, the reason there is this progression and part of the reason why it, it, you, you almost have, you have to earn your way through this, this world is because if you start as an analyst and you, you get a kind of an intuition for the numbers, right? You know how to model a deal by the time you get to be a managing director or somebody that's making actual buying decisions, there's certain things for whatever reason, even though you haven't done a model yourself in 10, 20 years. Yeah. You sniff, some, it out. you sniff it out. Something just does not feel right. And, and is, I, is there anything worse than as an analyst, an MD coming back to you and saying, hey, look, I need you to revisit this Yeah, this model. can't there's, be right. There's clearly something this, wrong. This can't be right. Your heart just goes into your throat. Yeah, and right? I was always, as an analyst, I was always blown away. I was like, how could he possibly have known I made this mistake so in, in the third tab of a 10-tab Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. And I'd go back and be like, oh, well, you know, I did make a mistake. Damn it. He was right. Yeah. And, but now, you know, now that I make my own decisions on, on numbers and deals, I get it. So, you know, somebody who, uh, somebody, a junior guy at our firm will, will do a little mock-up of, uh, of the model and give a, hand it to me. And there's just something intuitive where it's like, there's no way, you know, if we're paying, you know, a, a eight cap, which we talked about on the last episode, uh, for this deal that, and we're putting this much leverage that it could possibly be, uh, you know, only a, an 8% return on this deal, right? It's just not going to make sense. Yeah. Things don't line up. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's, what a great skill to develop. Congrats. Okay. So that's <laughs> <laughs> really fun at cocktail parties. I yeah, think. really? So this is, okay. So that's the acquisition team and those, you know, we joke about it, but that typically they do view themselves as sort of contributing the most to the firm, adding the most value. And they're typically comp the highest, right? 
Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some truth to it, right? It's like you can't, if you can't put the money to work into great deals, there's really no reason to have the company. Yeah. Okay. But then there's also, if you buy the deals and you screw them up. Yeah. It's equally important. Okay. So, so basically the asset management team is responsible for making sure that this building, you know, this real estate asset generates all of the cash that's needed to generate to hit the returns that the acquisition team sort of had penciled out when they did the deal, right? Yeah, they're they're babysitters. No, nope, just kidding. Wow. Just kidding. Just Jeez. kidding. I they, thought we decided these guys did all the work. They do. They're the MVPs. Yeah, they don't get enough credit. They don't get enough credit totally. But yeah, they're going to affect the business plan. So if you are in a value add deal and you're going to renovate the lobby, you know, they're getting bids, they're overseeing the contractors, they're managing the construction process. If you have a bunch of big leases coming up, you know, they have that all mapped out in software these days where they can get ahead of that, start negotiation, get the real estate brokers involved, right? They are actually implementing the day-to-day -day strategy. Gotcha. Okay. So these guys are important. Very. They're critical. All right. Good job. Good job, asset managers out there. Um, all right. So that's, okay. So we've talked about the acquisition team, the asset management team, and then there's, there's a couple other groups in the office that I think we should touch on because they're important and they exist and they're there and they're people too. They are people. Um, so the accounting team, right? So talk a little bit about that, right? There's a lot of money that flows through these organizations. Clearly a lot of accounting needs to be done. What are the, what does that team look like? Generally there's a CFO who, you know, obviously the leader that is, he's dealing, he or she is dealing with large refinancings, dealing with the large institutional investors coming up with uh, the capital structure of the firm, talking to lenders. Then there's the controller who has more of a day-to-day -day, you know, oversight of... That's, that's a cool title. Yeah, the controller. They're controlling the finances. They have a lot of day-to-day -day oversight of the of the accounting team, the people that are implementing um, you know, accounts receivable, accounts payable, that are putting together the balance sheets, putting together the income statements, the cash flow statements, right, for each individual asset. So these people are critical because you want to make sure that you're keeping track of all the, the dollars that are coming in and what's what's owed and what needs to go out. Right. And if you're not you're not paying your property taxes, that's a big that's a big problem. And the acquisition people and the asset management people are, are busy doing their work and they're not, you know, keeping track of every dollar and dime that's coming through or going out. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So the accountant's also very important. And then, you know, in a firm of like 30 or 40 total people, the accounting team might be what, like kind of six to 10, kind of in that range, you think? Yeah, it depends on what kind of strategy you're implementing, right? What product types you're going after. Some are more uh, intensive from an accounting standpoint than others, right? If you have a, a triple net, which is a triple net strategy where you have, you know, one tenant and they're responsible for all the expenses and you just get to collect the rent, you don't need as many accountants, Right, but if you have a giant portfolio of office buildings, there are a ton of accounting entries every day, and that would be a sizable portion of the team. Hmm. Okay, uh, there you go. Great career path for accountants out there. Uh, okay, so the final group that we're going to chat about these the investor relations team. So, again, this can be a this can be a pretty small group for a lot of firms, I'd imagine. Some of the bigger firms probably this is a sizable team. Uh, but you know, these are the folks what, that, uh, basically do the marketing and make, keep the investors happy and keep the money coming into the funds. Right. Yeah. And there's specific reporting that a lot of institutional investors, family offices, endowments, pension funds want to see. 
and the fundraising team is is responsible for coordinating a lot of that with the asset management team right they have to get the actual data from the people that are running the assets but then there's kind of a fund level reporting and fund level accounting so the investor relations team is not only you know doing the road show pounding the pavement trying to get more funds committed for uh, investments but they're also doing a lot of the customer service issues with uh, with these, you know, pension funds, endowments, et cetera. Okay, cool. So, okay, so that's that's the team. That's the organization. So we've got the acquisitions team, the asset management team, the accounting team, and the investor relations. And there's probably some other folks in there too. There's IT and things like that, obviously. Uh, but let's let's talk about how these firms make money. So this, uh, I think this is particularly interesting here. So first of all, I think it's important to note that there's two types of real estate private equity funds generally, right? Maybe talk about the two of those. The, there's folks with actual funds of capital to invest out of, and there's folks that do one-off deals, right? Yeah, we've touched on this in previous podcasts, but essentially it's a fund is you're pulling assets together, and there's one entity that everybody's investing into, and that entity goes out and makes a bunch of different investments, right? And invests in a bunch of different LLCs that are kind of under the mothership of the fund, right? Which sits on top, right? The, the top level entity. Then a, a one-off structure is like a, it's like a syndicated deal. You identify one piece of real estate, you go out, you put it under contract, you raise the capital, and that asset is an island, right? That The investors in that deal are just investors in that property. They're not spreading it out over 20, 30, 10, whatever the number is, different yeah. deals. And it's, it feels like you know if you if you raise a committed fund and you have a pool of capital, so you raise a hundred million bucks, it's sitting in a bank account, or at least you, you have access to it. Um, you, you you know you feel like you have a, you can move faster, right? So you find a deal, you can invest in that quickly. Um, you know you know you have the capital there, as opposed to these one-off guys, they have to they have to pull the money together when they find every deal, right? Oh yeah, it's way easier. I think it gives you leverage when you're going out to to buy deals too. If the money's already in place, you know you can execute quickly, and it's just much more simpler, right? You you're not having to triangulate the deal, which is get it tied up. Well, hell, first identify it, then get it tied up, put it under contract, then find the equity for it, go raise money for it, do due diligence, and also find the debt the loan on it. So instead of trying to do that all at once, at least if you have the money up front, you know you can close and even close all cash yeah. if you want to, which a lot of these larger firms do, is they close all cash because that's a competitive advantage, right? Hey, uh, you know, seller, I can close in, in 30 days versus the guy that has a financing contingency yeah. and is going to close in yeah. 60 days. He's like, look, I'd love to close in 30 days. I just don't have the money. So just bear with me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's advantage for sure. Yeah, but I'll, at the same time, it's, you know, if you if you do raise the fund and now you have this capital sitting there ready to go, you, there's some pressure to deploy that and that might create perverse incentives, right? So, oh, gosh, I raised $100 million, I got to go put it out there as opposed to the the one-off guy can, you know, if he says, hey, I don't like the market right now, he can he can go kick it on the beach, right? True, but a lot of times the larger funds will will do called capital. So the the you raise a you know hundred, two hundred, five hundred million dollar fund, you're not going to take all of that day one. It's going to be a contractual obligation, a contract, and then you you find the deal. And when you're about ready to you know, get ready to fund the deal, then you call the capital. Mm. You, you call up your yeah you call, your investor. You make, you make a phone call. Yeah, and say wire it. Now, if you're, if you're working with a smaller operator and you know you're a retail investor, that's a lot harder to do, right? Because all of a sudden you're you know you got a five million dollar deal and you want to call two million of equity. You got a three million dollar loan, 
and you think everybody, hey, well, they signed the documents. Yeah, but things happen, right? It's, it, if it's five retail investors, 10, whatever, yeah, maybe hit, somebody... They hit by a bus. Yeah, somebody drops off. They go to Hawaii. They forget to check their email. A million things can happen. They just flake on it, right? So it's always better, you know, when you're working kind of with retail investors, it, it gives you less of a, a, you know, anxiety as a sponsor to have kind of the money up front. But you're absolutely right. The clock then is ticking on uh, on the returns faster. Okay. So we're talking about how these firms make money. Okay. So there's two types of firms. But in general, both of these firms make money across, you know, basically by charging different types of fees. Um, there's an acquisition fee. You know, we'll, so we'll, like, I guess we'll get into these in more detail. Let's, let's start with the acquisition fee. So what is an acquisition fee? What's the range typically? And, and when do you charge that fee? Acquisition fee is like basically the equivalent of, I guess, what you guys would call a success fee, uh, where you you purchase the deal, right, and uh, you get compensated as a sponsor for doing all that legwork, right, the due diligence, finding the deal, getting the loan in place, right, making it happen. So that can be anywhere from usually fifty basis points, so half a percent, to up to two, maybe even three with some firms, but. That would be, have to be a pretty small deal. Gotcha. So, and do you does the acquisition fee is that common for even for these uh, types of organizations that have committed funds? So it's like they've already raised all the money, and now they're going to pay themselves just for finding a deal. Yeah, if it's a huge fund, it'll either be much smaller, or it'll uh, just not. They won't have one at all. Yeah. Um, this one, this this one, I find funny. It's like, hey, we did everything we were supposed to do. We closed the deal. We're just going to go give ourselves a fee just for the heck of it. Hey, you know, did you travel all over the country? Well, you are now with your current company, but it's a lot of work closing these deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a sponsor, here, you know, obviously here I am, you know, arguing for something that benefits me as a sponsor. But as a sponsor, a lot of the, uh, especially if you're not charging big asset management fees, right, you're not going to get paid very much, if anything, until you sell the building, right, sell the property. And that could be five, seven, ten years away. So it is a nice little, you know, hey, look, we can keep the lights on with this acquisition fee and, it, you know, it helps everybody Yeah, uh, just take a little bit of money. Okay, so the next one it would be an asset management fee. And so this is the one where once you do have some properties, some real estate under, under, under management, now you're collecting a fee uh, sort of, Based on your uh, based on the work you're doing to manage those assets, right? Yeah, and it's either on AUM, which is assets under management, or it's on deployed capital, right? Just just because you raise a hundred million doesn't mean that you're going to get asset management fees on that hundred million right away. You want to deploy the capital, put it to work, then you can start collecting an asset management fee. Or sometimes you'll structure it where it's on revenue of all the deals that you purchase. You get an asset management fee on the actual gross dollars coming in. Gotcha. Okay. So you got the acquisition fee, the asset man, you know, the acquisition fee when you buy it, the asset management fee when you're running it. Of course, of course there's a fee when you sell it, the disposition fee. Now this is the one that's funny because I just, whatever, for whatever reason, I don't agree with this fee. This doesn't make much sense to me and I've never charged one as a sponsor. Yeah. We're going to hire a broker and they're going to do a <laughs> lot of the work. So why am I taking a disposition fee? Yeah. And it is important to note, I suppose that not all firms charge all of these fees, right? Everyone kind of charges a blend of these. Yeah, it's part of the deal. And, and certainly it's, you want to you know what kind of fees your, the sponsor is charging. Uh, you know, fees aren't necessarily a bad thing. You want the, the, the sponsor to be motivated and aligned to actually, you know, do the job. But you, you want to definitely look out for 
structures where it seems like the majority of their income is fee related, that's not your interests aren't aligned there because their their interest would just be to raise as big a fund as possible. And the returns on the back end don't really matter to the sponsor because they're making so much money off all the fees. Okay. So, okay. So those are the fees, the acquisition fee, asset management fee, disposition fee. Yeah. And there's about 10 others that they could throw in there if they wanted to. They could throw, you know, I've seen people charge um, construction management fees, right? You can charge a, uh, a loan guarantee fee, a financing fee. So, you know, some firms will just have this one page will just be all the fees. Oh, wow, just and, nick, nickel and diming. Yeah, investors. which I don't, I don't agree with that approach. Yeah. I, I think that the sponsor should charge a couple of asset management fee, acquisition fee. You know, those make sense. Those are what you need to just run the business and you know pay for overhead. But when you start getting into you know disposition, uh, financing, loan guarantee fee, and this, that, and the other thing, I think that doesn't make much sense. Got it. Okay, so we got those fees. Makes sense, but. The important one, the holy grail, the big the big fee that everyone's going for. The big kahuna. Is the promote. What is the promote? The promote it just means that the sponsor gets a disproportionate share of the profits from what they're really owed, from the you know, the equity that they put in the deal. The upside. The upside, right? So let's use an example. So you buy an asset, an office building, an apartment complex that's worth a hundred million dollars, right? Okay. For simplicity's sake, let's just assume that we hit a giant home run. No debt on this one, right? All cash? No no debt. Okay. All cash. So we hit a home run. Something crazy happened. We got this amazing deal. We, we increased rents a ton. And in year one, we're able to sell it for $200 million, Right? Everybody's thrilled. So in that case, if we had a promote structure where the sponsor got 20% of the deal and the investor got 80% of the deal over what's called a hurdle, right, or a preferred return of 10%, then the the sponsor and the investor would have to split the proceeds, right, above anything above that 10%. So first the money go back to the 100 million would go back to the investor and then a 10% profit would go back to the investor, right? And then you would split the rest 80-20. Oh, nice. Now to just keep it really simple, let's assume that there was no hurdle rate in okay. this instance. A 0% hurdle. A 0% hurdle rate. So yeah. then in this instance, 100 million purchase price, yep. 200 million sales price. 100 million in profit. 100 million profit, 80% would go. So 80 million would go to the investor and $20 million would go to the sponsor of the private equity firm. Wow. $20 million. Okay, so that's, so that's where, that's where the, everyone makes their real money, right? That's where you get paid in, in this business for sure. And then in a scenario where, you know, same, same deal, where it's a $100 million purchase, $105 million sales price. It's okay. not that great of a deal. It's, no one's really stoked. Yeah. So one year later, you sell for $105 million. That's only a $5 million return. And say there was a 10% hurdle rate, then all that $105 million is going back yeah. to the investor. Because it was a fi- okay, so a 5% return, but that hurdle was 10%. So you didn't hit it. So sorry, you don't get your piece of the upside. Yeah. If there wasn't this hurdle rate, then $104 million would go to the investor and $1 million would go to the sponsor. Sounds wonderful. Uh, where, where do I sign up? <laughs> well, good. So, the, okay. So the promotes where they make the big money, the fees, uh, the fees keep the lights on and maybe you make a little bit of profit on that, but really, it really, it's this promote that everyone's going for. And that's, that's what pays for the art, right? Yeah. The fees are only really profitable when you're talking about a very large fund. If it's a 500 million plus fund, then the fees are amazing. But you know, if it's a $20 million fund, nobody's getting rich off 1% a year. Okay, good. Well, sounds like a good gig. It's not bad. Is that it? 
See you later. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Alternative Investor. Since you made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.